KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. For those with a family member suffering from Alzheimer's, no explanation is necessary. For those without one, no real explanation is possible. Alzheimer's is a cruel disease that often kills the person long before it kills the body. Is there hope? What's the latest about what we've learned about the disease? That's the discussion on this special Mind Matters edition of Northwest Now. Welcome to this Mind Matters edition of Northwest Now. We've got several of these shows planned in the coming months, all focusing on mental health. Alzheimer's is a brutal, relentless disease. Alzheimer's slowly damages nerve cells in the brain responsible for speech, memory, and thinking, and then progresses to attack the rest of the body's functions, typically killing the patient four to eight years after diagnosis. Coma weather legend Steve Poole succumbed to the disease a few months ago. And the data shows that for some reason, the Pacific Northwest is a hot spot with a whopping 10% of the 1.3 million Washingtonians over 65 having that disease. There are several drugs out there now on the market or in late-stage trials that seem to show promise, including one that is being given to patients and studied at the University of Washington. Researchers are also starting to identify the genes that might be responsible for Alzheimer's, but there's also some evidence that the old standbys can also work to delay the onset, like good diets, exercise, good sleep, and quitting smoking. And as Steve Kiggins tells us, staying mentally active and learning new things. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. I love to help people. I've always loved to help people. Inside Mountain View Community Center in Edgewood. But Nathan has a folder, right? See, Nathan? Instructor Lori Arndt uses music and art as a therapeutic tool, healing both caregivers and elders struggling through dementia. People with dementia can live a good life. The program is called Opening Minds Through Art. It uses music to stretch both muscle and the mind. Making art allows dementia patients a chance to stir their creative juices. It was developed at Scripps Gerontology Center at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I feel like it's important for them to be able to have something joyful to do. And numerous scientific studies prove the program boosts perceptions of quality of life, diminish distress, anxiety, depression, and anger. We continue to study the effect on students. So this could be traditional students, medical students. I mean, think about the power of understanding student medical students who are eventually going to engage with this population. And it just talks. Today is Ray and Judy Lopez's first time experiencing opening minds through art. Awaiting an official diagnosis, Judy says beyond expressing her artistic flair, 
just getting together with others makes her feel better. This is a good opportunity here, just getting me out of the house if nothing else. Not pretty? Across the U.S. and beyond, opening minds through art has touched the lives of more than 6,000 caregivers and dementia patients. Program officials believe their classes can improve the lives of even more. They only need more funding to expand their reach. Its impact on everyone working in a long-term care organization is is phenomenal. So we need more studies to document those, those types of findings. While dementia takes away one's autonomy, opening minds to art gives back a patient's ability to make their own choices. At its core, the program allows patients to regain the dignity dementia rips away. You get to be yourself. You get to make the decisions. You are valued. In Pierce County, Steve Kiggins, Northwest Now. Joining us now are Brad Forbes, the Policy Director at the Alzheimer's Association of Washington, and Jessica Van Fleet Green, a doctor in the multi-care system in the PACE Partnerships Program that provides a lot of in-home care for the area's elderly population. How big of a problem is it? And I've also heard, too, that Washington State is a bit of a hot spot for it, which seems kind of weird. Why do you think that is um, as you answer that question about how big of a deal it is? Um, well, so... As of 2020, there were about 120,000 people living in uh, Washington state with Alzheimer's disease. And that number is actually expected to rise to 140,000 um, by 2025. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, as we see uh, us sort of hitting the bend of the elbow, you know, a big uh, contributor to this is age. Age is the number one factor in whether or not a person develops Alzheimer's disease. And um, as a state, we have a lot of retirees. And as the baby boom generation continues to uh, get older, we're only going to see this problem increase. Yeah, interesting. And maybe longer life expectancies come with a price. Um, and and that, that could be part of it. Um, Jessica, what are your thoughts about the scope of the problem? Is, is, it, is it overwhelming? Is it manageable? With 120,000 people, that's a good-sized city. Yeah, I agree with Brad 100%. You know, I find it to be potentially overwhelming, particularly in the next five to 10 years. Uh, we have an aging population. We have fewer and fewer physicians and caregivers, in, uh, particularly in our area. And so I think that this problem is one that is important to address now. And the earlier, the better in terms of getting pipeline for caregivers and for educating families and for ensuring that we have uh, enough uh, medical team members to take care of this population. What's going on with medical team members? Is it aging out of the physicians who wanted to do that as a specialty or? Yeah, I think it's multifactorial and I think, um, and I want to be intentional about not being physician centric because um, really this is not just about physicians, but this is about uh, in-home caregivers. This is about RNs, LPNs, uh, CNAs. Uh, this is about social workers to help support families. This so is the whole infrastructure. Whole infrastructure, yeah. nurse practitioners, physicians, physician assistants. Uh, and so in particular, as we think about neurology, um, that specialty is in very high demand and uh, early in the diagnosis, you use, uh, we rely heavily on our neurology colleagues and, and there are fewer of them than yeah. primary care physicians and, and uh, practitioners and um, they're also uh, in high demand. I realize you'll both have different answers from this, one from a policy perspective and another from clinical, but I, I wanted to discuss the, the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's, how they relate. A lot of people who aren't, you know, don't have um, a family member or aren't involved in this heavily use the two interchangeably. I guess my question to you, Brad, is does it matter or is the Alzheimer's only looking at Alzheimer's and other dementias aren't important? Or do you look at them all as kind of an umbrella? How do you, how do you approach it and how should we as the public approach it in terms of how we speak about it? 
Um, yeah, so at the Alzheimer's Association, um, we uh, work on issues around Alzheimer's disease, which is a specific type of dementia, um, but we also um, look at all other dementia. Um, and from the public policy perspective, um, the services um, and needs of people with any type of dementia tend to be um, fairly similar. Um, so we don't differentiate between the different types of dementia when we're making uh, policy or budgetary asks of our legislature. Okay, interesting. So yeah, for, from your perspective, you're, you're not um, slicing and dicing that. It's, it's um, um, your requests, and like you said, your structure is, is, is based around the whole umbrella of dementia, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, clinically, Jessica, you've talked about this a little bit before we began the program. Um, I thought you had a good analogy about explaining this for those of us who just, you know, every other word is either dementia or Alzheimer's. We're not being very specific. Um, how should how should we approach that in your view? Yeah, so dementia is an umbrella term of which Alzheimer's is a version, frontotemporal dementia is a version, dementia with Lewy bodies is a version, vascular dementia, and other types of uh, uh, lesser known dementias. And so um, I, like Brad, you know, when, by the time they get to my care, I, I take care of vulnerable elders, 55 and older. It's usually pretty advanced stages and cognitive impairment and cognitive impairment, it, it's the same, right, and, mm -hmm. and how we treat. But where it's important to have the distinction is early in the course of the illness, particularly as we look at novel therapies for treatment, because those are really targeting specifically Alzheimer's. And so the mechanism. Early, the mechanism. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. early in the course of the disease process, I think that it is important to recognize. But again, more toward the advanced stages, we're going to treat everyone with uh, with dementia, regardless of what the underlying etiology is. Uh, we're going to give them the same amount of resources. We're going to treat with the same compassionate care and think about symptom management and how we support families in the same exact mechanism. But as the therapies become more specific, yes. you, you need to know about the causational factors, whatever they right. can be. You have to be more specific in terms of how, how we divvy this up. Right. Um, and the <clears throat> genetic predisposition, mm -hmm. I think, is important, too, so for looking at, at that piece. Let's talk a little bit about the state of research and the state of the art. Brad, I know you're primarily focused on policy, but um, you're also with the Alzheimer's Association, too, and I'm sure keeping an eye on that about what's hot, what's not, clinical trials that show promise, some that have fallen through, things we should ask for funding for, things that maybe not so much. Um, so give us a little feeling from your perspective of the state of the art about therapies. Are th is this an exciting time or is this just part of the long slog we've been in? Give us some perspective. Um, we're at actually at a very exciting point in uh, the history of Alzheimer's research. Uh, the FDA recently approved um, the first therapies that have been shown to actually slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease in um, patients where uh, that diagnosis has happened very early um, in their experience with the, with the disease. Um, and that's a drug that's called lecanemab. Um, and so if you or a family member um, think that that might be something that you would like to pursue, um, we strongly suggest that you um, talk to your doctor um, and see if that, that might be something that um, could help give you more time for yourself and more time with your loved ones. So early onset, and this is where we get back to the specific specificity question. You know you're going, you're walking down the Alzheimer's path. Um, those are two important qualifiers. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, you know, the most important thing you can do if you're having symptoms of dementia is go see your primary care physician um, and work towards getting a diagnosis as early as possible, um, because that is when we can 
um, use these therapies to um, hopefully intercept some of the progress. Jessica, I'm sure there's a stack of journals like about so on your desk, so you're probably reading about all these trials and everything going on. Give us a feel for what's happening out there. Yeah, so I think it's a time of cautious optimism and also great excitement. So up until really the last one to two years, we have really had uh, treatments that um, work on symptom management and really don't impact the course of disease. So really just in the last year with lecanemab, it has been more uh, promising in terms of the ability to get more toward the root cause of the illness. But uh, again, the cautious optimism piece is what's really important. So um, these drugs are not readily available yet. There are only a handful of um, organizations that are doing it. And, and this is where I also have deference to my neurology colleagues, I, me as a primary care doc. Um, you know, I would refer out to neurology colleagues to really look at this uh, after the diagnosis is made, and again, targeting Alzheimer's and, and that mild and early category. Yeah. Uh, but what I think is exciting is that because this breakthrough has been made on really treating underlying cause and, and changing course of illness, which is again, the first time we've really had any data to show that it's changing the course of it, uh, I think that that's what lends itself to a lot of excitement on potentially what's going to come in the next five to ten years. And I don't want to be morbid, um, but but if you can delay the onset, maybe you're going to live to 88 and you die of something else. You die of a heart attack or whatever, but you haven't had this long, slow loss of personhood um, with Alzheimer's. You know, maybe something else got you. But nobody wants to go, but at least it's not that. Well, I think there's, yeah, potentially hope that that is what's going to happen and that it's slowing progression. You know, it, we still need to be very clear that this is a progressive neurological disease yeah. for which there is no cure. Uh, but for those with Alzheimer's, when you catch it early, exactly right. We can potentially impact the course of disease and maybe you are living a little bit longer and with better quality, which right. is what's most important to most individuals. Right, and that quality of life piece is so important because um, you know, for families who have somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's, I mean, um, the advanced stages of it are very difficult, um, you know, um, in terms of people not knowing you or whatever, whatever it may be. A lot of families have stories about that. Brad, I want to talk to each one of you about what you do specifically. Talk to us a little bit about your work um, with the Alzheimer's Association. What needs to happen out there in terms of policy on your desk? You may not have journals, but I'm sure you have a yellow pad with a list of stuff that you want to accomplish. What's on that list? Um, and I'm sure it has to do with things like uh, home health care, caregiver support. What are the things we need? What's on your ask list? Um, so one of the major steps that our state government can take is to make sure that we are coordinating efforts throughout the various departments of, of our state government um, because the number of people with dementia in our state is increasing and to meet this crisis head on the government needs to be prepared and organized and ready. And so um, I am the co-chair of our state's Dementia Action Collaborative, um, or the DAC as we call it. And um, the DAC worked over the last couple of years to develop um, an updated state plan to address Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we have a set of recommendations for the legislature and our state agencies to take um, over the course of the next five years to help um, meet this crisis head on. Um, and uh, one of the um, first steps that would be appropriate to take is we are advocating for um, funding in the legislature $168,000 to um, create a new position in the Department of Health that is solely focused full-time on working on dementia programming um, because the Department of Health works on um, early intervention um, and public awareness um, which are two of the most important um, 
actions that, that the state can really help with to get people um, into their doctors and diagnosed as early as possible. And I, so I feel like 168 grand is very doable. What are, what are you swinging at the fences for? What are the big things you need? I mean, someday we'd like to see, boom, what are, go ahead, be aspirational. <laughs> yeah, so um, there are a couple of other things. Um, one is uh, we really need to grow our office of public guardianship um, because oftentimes if um, people advance to a point in the uh, disease where um, they can no longer make decisions for themselves, especially if they don't have um, family members or family members in the area who um, can act um, as, as an adult guardian, um, we need to make sure that they have decision makers to um, help uh, with everything from any, any kind of contract um, to um, maybe placement in a long-term care facility if that's appropriate. Um, so we are looking to grow that program. Um, and also I wanna take a moment to um, touch on caregiving mm -hmm. um, because a family caregiver is oftentimes the first caregiver that a person has as they're um, beginning to advance through um, the, the dementia process. And um, being a caregiver is significantly uh, more stressful than a full-time job. Oh yeah. Um, and it really weighs down on the individual. And so um, we're also seeing there are um, equity issues because caregivers are, caregivers are almost always women, um, uh, spouses or adult daughters. Um, and so um, to make sure that the caregivers can continue um, their lives and continue their careers, uh, we really need to incentivize people to go into um, professions such as in-home care. Um, and make sure as well that our long-term care system is fully funded so that when it's appropriate, people um, can move into, say, an assisted living facility where they're cared for. And they're attractive jobs with some, some, a minimum pay requirement and some of those kinds of things. Too. Good benefits, yeah. yeah. Jessica, short of a cure, which I know you'd like to just to materialize on your desk, um, what, what, is, what do you need to better serve patients? How does PACE fit into that in your system? So talk a little bit about your work and uh, what you need. Right. So, well, I, again, agree with Brad wholeheartedly that really having good pipeline for caregiving and a really good process for guardianship in our state, I think, uh, in the now is a really good first step. Uh, so the position that myself and my colleagues are frequently put in, whether we're in the PACE clinic or in the hospital, is that if they do not have surrogate decision makers, we know we cannot meet their needs, and frequently they stay in the hospital. And that is not the place for patients that have dementia or dementia-related symptoms. It's really difficult for them to be in a hospital setting. Uh, they're best served in a home-like environment uh, that is not very uh, stimulating. Yeah. So I think uh, if I were to wave my wand, it would really be a lot of support and resources uh, to your point, with uh, well-paying, highly desirable jobs. We need to, to make it attractive for people to wanna go into caregiving, uh, particularly since the COVID devastation, um, home caregiving, uh, long-term care, it has um, really been dramatically impacted and it's gonna take a long time to recover. So um, we need support and, and we need uh, uh, places for these patients to go and, and to get the care that they need. In a, in a really age-friendly format. Mm -hmm. I have a little heading here on this section, and it's called The Ugly Truth, Money. And um, how does that fit into all this? It can break families. It can be very expensive. You talked about um, people needing guardianship. Typically, those are folks with, without assets. Um, people with assets have lots of people um, you know, ready to step in and be guardians. Right. Um, we hear the story, horror stories from families whose assets have been drained. Any thoughts about that, Brad, in terms of solutions or some policy prescriptions that can help alleviate some of that? Um, yeah, I mean, so there's, there's a couple things that we can do. One is to ensure that our um, state 
has as uh, robust of a Medicaid program as possible, Medicaid being the program that um, people are involved in once they've spent down their assets, um, making sure that people can still receive um, services that work for them and provide them with the dignity of a good life, um, even if they um, have spent down into poverty. Um, and I, I do also want to highlight, um, secondly, that a couple of years ago, the state passed the Long-Term Care Trust Act, right. um, which uh, will um, pay up to $36,000 um, to an individual who needs long-term care services um, without them needing to spend down into poverty. And um, these long-term care services are both in a setting such as an assisted living facility or a nursing home if that's necessary. Um, but the f funding can also be used to um, do things like retrofit your home um, yeah. so that there are fewer fall risks. Yeah, because memory care is, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars $9,000 a month. And so, yeah, the home care, that's where the home health care piece steps in and trying to retrofit right. and do those things. You're nodding your head. Go ahead, Jess. Yeah, absolutely. And I was saying um, seven to 8000 at a minimum, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, looping back to the question that you previously asked, when we talk about PACE organizations, those are resources for patients who are largely underserved. So a lot of duly eligible Medicaid and Medicare. And so really infusing more into programs like that to combat exactly the issue you talk about where they don't have the funds, you know, they don't have the nest egg. And, and so we're not talking about um, people who have uh, large funds to be able to get into those memory care facilities and be able to spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a month on memory care, right? Yeah. And, and if you're not one of those individuals, you end up on Medicaid and then end up in a, on a long-term care unit, which and again, as a, a skilled nursing facility, um, a medical director for years, uh, they can provide wonderful care to these patients. And it also is always not the right setting. And, and so, um, and if COVID taught us anything, it was really that um, there are some risks to, to some congregate settings. And so really making sure that it's right care, right time, right place. Yeah. And when we think about what matters most to patients, their families and caregivers, Many of them want to be in a more home-like environment. You know, they, they want to be in their home or they want to be in some place similar. And so thinking about how we can get to that place without breaking the bank is really critical. Yeah, it's, that is, that's a big one. And of course, you know, um, people don't want to talk about folks falling through the cracks, but Alzheimer's is one of those diseases where you've, even somebody with assets can fall through the cracks because um, it's just so daunting. You know, and I'm surprised your number, what did you say, 10 to 15 a month? Oh, yeah, for the higher end. Memory um, care. Even moderate, yeah, memory care. I mean, it, it is very, very expensive for families. And, and so that is why we need robust infrastructure for those who cannot afford it. Uh, so I, I think that it's really critical that we think about that. And again, the next five to 10 years, um, we are going to have more and more patients with dementia who need this type of care. And yeah. so if we are not forward thinking enough about memory care facilities and how we are going to accommodate these patients, many of them will end up inappropriately in hospitals because hospitals are community safety nets. Yeah, yeah. So Brad, um, is there a policy solution for something that costs ten dollars to $15,000 a month? Um, and, or, or, or does that long-term, that short-term disability kick in because folks don't spend a long time in that particular period of the disease? It may not be six years. It may be their last nine months, and maybe it's more doable. How have you, how have you broken that down, and is there such a thing as a policy solution for a disease that can run you 9 to 10, 11, 12, maybe up to $15,000 a month? 
Yeah, you know, if, if a person has Alzheimer's disease or any other dementia, um, the most important thing to do, as I mentioned earlier, um, so forgive me for saying it again, but no, the most fine. important thing to do is uh, to get your diagnosis as early as possible. Um, so if you or a loved one is having any symptoms, um, go to the doctor and talk to them about that. Get a, a cognitive assessment um, because once you get a diagnosis and um, you can sort of see where you are in the progression of Alzheimer's or another type of dementia, then you can start really planning out um, what uh, what your needs are in the short, medium, and long terms. Right. Um, and, and if you have private insurance, you may be in good shape. But Yeah, or if you have Medicare, because um, yep. Medicare will pay for a, a cognitive assessment. Okay. Um, and, um, and then that way um, you can um, hopefully take steps to uh, live in your own home as long as possible. I know you, you mentioned the benefits of that, um, and I think that is really important, being in a familiar setting, um, and also you know, providing yourself with the autonomy of, of choosing your own setting. Um, Okay, yeah, fair enough. Last 30 seconds, I want to make sure that you each get a chance to um, talk about where folks can learn more. Brad, if people want to get in touch with the Alzheimer's Association, learn more, um, look at a, a lot of the information you have on the site, how do they go about doing that? Um, so um, I would say that the first thing that you should all know is that we have a 24-7 helpline. Okay. Um, this uh, helpline is staffed 24-7, um, 365 with uh, master's level social workers ah. who um, can help you with any question around dementia, whether you're um, looking for an assisted living facility or looking for in-home resources in your own local community. Um, and that number is 1-800-272-3900. You can call anytime, day or night with, with any question. We can, we can guide you to local resources. And Jessica, briefly for you. Yeah, so for those interested in PACE organizations who maybe do not have the resources as we discussed, they can go to the National PACE Association website. They can go to MultiCare's website for uh, PNW PACE partners. Uh, for those outside of Pierce County, uh, there are two other PACE organizations in the state of Washington. Uh, so highly encourage uh, people to do that. And agreed, um, highly recommend people seek out their primary care physician. Uh, this is an opportunity uh, for patients and their caregivers you know, not to be in denial, which I think is really hard. Yeah. It's hard to admit that you're having memory issues and so I really just encourage people to to be assertive um, in knowing that maybe something isn't quite right and and seek early treatment and diagnosis. Good conversation. Thanks both of you Thank so, you much, so for much for coming to Northwest Thank you. Now. Alzheimer's is really a family disease because while it's harming the patient, it's also taxing caregivers and families emotionally, financially and logistically. The bottom line, this is the kind of thing the United States needs a moonshot to fix rather than getting bogged down in divisive politics and division. Thank goodness there is still a core of meritorious, high-achieving scholars, researchers, doctors, and policymakers working here in what is still for now the country most likely to produce important results.